So he puts foremen over them, rulers over them. The leaders become Egypt because Egypt is better at ruling over Israel than Israel is at ruling over themselves. And they begin to build two cities, Pithma and Ramses. Okay, so Pithma probably is connected to a city by the name of Tu, which is connected to a god, Ray. Why is that important? These are military cities. They're military cities that are on the far eastern border facing modern-day Israel, which means they're military barracks. So not only are they oppressing the Israelites, showing their power and control, but they're using the Israelites to build military cities to exercise their control over the foreigners around them. Okay, so they're building weapons and guns, so to speak, for the nation to become more powerful. No, the Jews or the Israelites did not build the pyramids. The pyramids were around long before Israel ever entered into Egypt. Okay, so they were not. Now, we also know the pyramids were actually temples and not tombs. And the pyramids would have been built by people who were dedicated, loyal, faithful followers of their God, and they were doing this for their God. You do not use slaves or servants to build your temples. You use faithful worshipers to build temples. So they weren't even built with slave labor. So you build, you use slaves to build military barracks for you to oppress more people. Now the city Ramses. Now obviously Ramses connected to the god or the the Pharaoh Ramses II. So throw a whole bunch of more history at you. Ramses II is ruling during the 1200s BC, about 200 years after what the Bible dates the Exodus at. Exodus 14:46, Ramses is around 1225. Okay, so 200 years later. But people come to this and they're like, they're building the city of Ramses. Well, there's two Ramses. The first Ramses has already come, but he was kind of pathetic. Ramses II, during the 1200s, was a great city builder and built some of the largest monuments that Egypt has had. You can even go to Egypt today, and there's a statue of Ramses II that's like longer than this, the width of this room. It's on its back now. Okay, they're huge. So it's obviously this is Ramses building these cities. So that means the Jews are in Egypt during the 1200s. That means the Exodus was in the 1200s. That means all the other dates in the Bible are wrong. Yay, we proved the Bible wrong. Then we're going to reinforce that by making a movie called The Ten Commandments by Cecil DeMille's movie, where we're going to not only make Ramses II the pharaoh of the oppression, but we're going to make his son really good friends with Moses. Okay? And then that reinforces it even more. Then the cartoon The Prince of Egypt comes along and reinforces that even more. And then the new really horrible movie called The Exodus with Christian Bale, where God is a, a, an angry 10-year-old boy, they reinforce that even more. That's all propaganda. Because the minute you believe that, then you come to dates and you're like, oh yeah, there's another reason why the Bible's wrong. The problem is that doesn't work. Because they also will say Ramses II is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Well, Ramses II, we know that Moses, if Ramses II was born, or Moses was born under Ramses II, we know that that Pharaoh doesn't die until Moses is in his 80s. 
There's only two pharaohs. The two longest pharaohs that have ever lived is Ramses II and Thutmose II, and they reigned for 50 years. Nobody reigned for 60, 70, 80 years. So the math doesn't work. And if you look at other things, and we'll talk about this later when we get the Exodus, but there's a lot of Egyptian archaeology that supports a 1446 view. So Ramses II cannot be that pharaoh of the Exodus and the building of the cities of the oppression. It just doesn't work. And like I said, I'll go in a lot more detail when we actually get to the Exodus. Um, I can do it now. One of the other things that we know why the Exodus happened in 1446 is because the city of Jericho, when the archaeologists got there and uncovered the city of Jericho, they found that the city of Jericho was, they dated the destruction to around the 1400s, 1404, 1406, something like that. Well, if a 1446 exodus, you subtract 40 from that when they're entering after 40 years wandering in the wilderness, that matches up with Jericho. Okay, not only that, you got Ramses II. He's ruling around, they say the exodus is around 1225. So they would say then the exodus happened to have around 1225. Well, the pharaoh after Ramses II says that he conquered a fully developed nation of Israel ruling over the land of Canaan. The Egyptian reckons it's the Minotep Steli. S-T-E-L-E. The Minotep Steli. You can go to my notes online that that name is in there. Uh, but the Minotep Steli is dated around the 1200s and he actually says, I defeated Israel. That's about 20 years after the Exodus. Not enough time. Okay, even if you say the Bible's wrong, they didn't wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Can you take a people group who were a slave and in within 20 years they become a politically powerful enough nation to rule over one of the most powerful territories in the ancient Near East? That's not possible. Nobody goes from slaves to a military dominant nation that's so powerful that an Egyptian is going to put them on their bragging list. See, the Egyptians only put powerful nations on their list because that's, you brag. You don't brag about beating up Urkel or like really weak people. You brag about beating up Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee, okay, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can, that can't happen in 20 years. But if the Exodus happened in 1446 and they wandered for 40 years and got to Egypt, then that puts the Pharaoh, that puts Egypt, sorry, that puts Israel and Canaan, and it matches that Pharaoh with the time of the judges. Well, what do we know about the judges? They're constantly getting defeated by foreign nations all the time because they've been around for over 300 years, which is enough time to become a nation. It's enough time to rule over Canaan. It's enough time to become weak enough to now become attacked by other people. And so you've got all these things in Egyptian, and I can go on and on and on and on. And it's all in my notes if you want to go read it. But for now, just know that we've got Egyptian records saying that we defeated the Israelites, matching up with 1446 Exodus. We got the Bible saying it's a 1446 view of the Exodus. We got the Pharaoh's chronologies matching up, which I could go in a lot more detail of that. And we got archaeology supporting it. All the History Channel has is they're building the city of Ramses. Actually, on Netflix, there's a video on the Exodus, and actually a two-hour video proving, showing you all this Exodus, all this archaeological evidence, all that kind of stuff. A little bit more user-friendly than reading some, like, document. I read the document, and then, uh, then the movie came out. I was like, oh. So there's a lot of things that support this. Now, I only say this because I want you to trust the Bible when it says it was 1446. 
Now, there are, there are like four different views on the Exodus. And let me tell you right now, this view, the archaeology is not ironclad proof. Mostly because there's so much about this time period we don't know. What I'm saying is not that all the historical records prove it without a shadow of a doubt, but there's enough evidence to say that if you believe the Bible's date, you're not a dumb person. There is evidence. But at the same time, when the History Channel says, no, it's 1200s, there really is no evidence. So I'm not saying that the archaeology proves without a shadow of doubt that the Bible's right. What I'm saying is the evidence for the Bible's date is far greater in weight than the other evidence is. Which means, one, I tend to lean towards the one that has more evidence, and two, don't let anybody make you think that you're stupid and you're ignorant because you take a biblical date of the Exodus. There is evidence. It may not say exactly what we think, but it's not dumb. Does that make sense? And that's important to understand. It does not prove without a shadow of doubt, but it does prove that there's great weight to it, and you can be a very intelligent person and say the Bible is right, because there is evidence. So that's the, that's the main point. The Sea of Ramses. Why is it called the Sea of Ramses? One, that word is not just the name of a guy. That word just means Ray, the sun god, created it or created him. You could say you could name that lots of things. Just because Ramses II was the most famous name doesn't mean he was the only one with that name. It also tends to be used other places in the Bible to refer to an entire region, not just a city. So it could be just that Ramses II was named a name that was pretty common of other things in Egypt, which is true of every culture. Most, things, most times when we call somebody by name, it's a common name that we've heard somewhere else we liked. Second, it was not uncommon for people to go back. Remember, this is written much later. I mean, these events are happening, but Moses wrote it much later. It's also not uncommon for some people to come along and say, well, you know what? None of you know where Constantinople is, so we're going to call it Istanbul. But even though we're talking about ancient Istanbul, and it wasn't called Istanbul back then, we're still going to call it Istanbul, Istanbul today because that's what everybody today knows it by. So it's not uncommon for editors to go back and update the names. Now, they're not deceiving you, and they're not changing history because it's still the exact city. They're just updating it with the name, so when people read it, they're like, where's that at? Like we feel. The Jew can read and say, oh, yeah, I know where that is. And then they know the history, and they know that wasn't always called that. And so it could be the editors came along later and renamed this Ramses in the Bible so that the Jews reading it during the exile would know what city they were talking about. It also could be that Ramses was also notorious for not only naming cities after himself, but naming other people's cities after himself just so he could say he had actually built more. So there's lots of explanations of why this is called Ramses without it specifically being this is a 1200 date for the book. Does that make sense? Now, I know some of you just like, I don't really care about that. This doesn't affect my salvation. That's okay. I'm not going through all of this to say that this has to be understood so that you can have a better relationship with God. Because if it was important necessary, God would be putting all this in here. 
What I am telling you this for is so that when the world constantly wants to tell you you're stupid for taking the Bible at face value, and there is no historical archaeological evidence for the Bible, that even though you may not remember anything that I just said, somewhere in the back of your mind you'll remember there was a lot of good evidence that he gave that supported this. And I can at least go into this conversation with this atheist or this History Channel documentary and know that they're not giving me all the evidence. And when they're making me feel stupid, I'm not stupid. And that's the main reason. And in that sense, it does affect your salvation because now you can sit there and not question whether you've put your faith in the Bible that's not accurate. Okay, so does that make sense? I'm not telling you all this because you've got to know all these dates and names and details or I'm going to test you. Or I'm telling you so that you can at least remember somewhere, somewhere, somebody gave a lot of stuff that showed me the Bible does match up with history. It is accurate, even though it's not interested in telling me all about Egyptian history and giving me all these dates. And I don't have to feel stupid when that professor's talking to me. Okay, and some of you might even think this is actually really interested, interesting. I really want to learn more, and I feel like I can actually go to some of the people at my work who are obsessed with this stuff, and now I actually can have an intelligent conversation with them that I never had before. Okay, does that make sense? That's the importance of this. That's the importance of all this. Any questions? All right, like I said, there's a lot more. And you can go watch that documentary. You can go read my notes to get the greater details. But for the sake of this class, I just want to give you a taste so that you know that it's out there um, and that you know that there is some trustworthiness here. And that's what I tell my students. I just A lot of times when I launch them off into college, I just want them to know in the back of their mind when that professor literally will say, I have an agenda to destroy your faith, they know that they're not dumb when they're facing off with them. Okay, and they at least can remember there's somewhere I can go to get answers. The, the, one of the beauties of living, technology is very dangerous, but one of the beauties is you can quickly access all this information. Now that you know it's there, you can at least say, okay, now I know that I can find something out there when that conversation does come one day. So they're oppressing them. But the main theological point here is the kingdom that is not of God is trying to destroy the kingdom of God, whether it is intentionally thinking that or not. But despite that, the God that seems like he's not protecting his people because they're enslaved, he's not protecting them because they're being oppressed, is actually truly there with them, blessing them and multiplying their numbers because it is statistically impossible for a people to be oppressed like this and grow in numbers. And that's the main theological point that God is trying to make here. That despite the world's attack, and this is what you, you feel like you're alone in your suffering. You feel like you're the only person at work or in your neighborhood who still is trying to follow God and that kind of stuff. It's exactly what the kingdom of Satan wants you to feel like. But you need to remember that despite that, God is still blessing you. Don't focus on what you don't have. Focus on what you have. And focus on how he's taking care of you. Focus, turn on the right news, the persecuted church. Listen to the testimonies of the people in your family and your, your faith and your church and your missions and see how God is blessing. That's what you need to focus on. 
You need to be aware of the world is doing so you're not ignorant. But you can't focus on that message so you don't feel like you're isolated and alone and that God is really not truly involved. And that's the key here. And that's the mistake that Israel is going to make when God comes to Moses and he says, where have you been? And God's like, have you not been paying attention? You've been watching the wrong news program. Okay? So they pressed them with hard labor. But the more the Egyptians oppressed in verse 12, the more they multiplied and spread, fruitful and scatter. As a result, the Egyptians loathed the Israelites, and they made the Israelites serve rigorously. Notice that the slavery increases when they notice it doesn't work. It didn't immediately start off oppressive, totally oppressive. They made their lives bitter by the hard service with mortar and bricks and by all kinds of service in the fields. Every kind of service the Israelites were required to give was rigorous. Notice the repetition of your translation will use the word service, work, and slave. Bondage, bondage, bondage. That's the word abad. And it's repeating it over and over again. And it wants you to think that this word is bad until you get to Mount Sinai and he starts using it in a good way. But that's yet to come. Right now you need to think bad, 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 bad. And then God is going to redefine the word. That's most of what the Bible is doing too. A lot of times the Bible uses the exact same words that the culture does, but then it redefines the definitions. You see, words are important, but what's more important is the definition behind your word. Because I can say I love my backpack, and I love my daughter, and I love my wife, and I love my country, but I'm using love in completely different ways. Words are important, but definitions are even more important. And so it's how you define the words. So right now the word abad is being defined in a bad, oppressive service work with no self-value or dignity kind of a sense. But it's going to be redefined when we get to Mount Sinai. So verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives. Now this is the first time the word Hebrew is mentioned. Now the word Hebrew does not specifically refer to the people we think of Hebrews. The word Hebrew refers to lower class Semitic foreign people. It's the word that you use not to degrade somebody, not to reclass them, but you're just saying that they're not our nationality and they're poor or not as civilized or not as educated as. I mean, they're still good people. We don't have anything against them. We're not going to mistreat them, but eh, they can't contribute to our culture that much because we're a technologically sophisticated culture. This is kind of the word that we might use in third world countries. Like we love them, we want to take care of them when they're oppressed, we, we try to help them with money, and we go over their weakness. But as American culture, we don't really think that they can contribute anything to our culture because they're not as civilized and technologically advanced as us. That's what the word Hebrew means. And so it refers to all those people out there that are just not as good as our nation and they're foreigners. Now, what's interesting is the only time the word Hebrew is ever used in the Bible is when foreign people are talking about Israel or when the Israelites are talking about themselves to foreign people. So if I go to somebody of another nation, I use the word that they call me, not the word. Now, that shows you it's not a derogatory term. It's not like those derogatory terms that we come up with people it's just a term that you're a foreigner, but we see you as politically less 
powerful and not as contribute as with us. Okay, so kind of like the word poor. You're not like us because you have less money than us. And a lot of people in America don't see the poor as contributing a lot because they don't have the money and the skills to do that. But at the same time, we don't like mistreat or degrade them or hate them or try to persecute the poor. So probably the best thing that we have today that I can think of right now is just the word poor. And that's how. So, so when I'm talking to somebody of great wealth, I say I'm poor because that's the way they view me. Even though I may not view myself exactly poor in the same way that they view me as poor. And then when they're talking about me, they call me poor. That's kind of how the word Hebrew is used. Of those Semitic people that are not us, and they, we don't see them as contributing to our culture as much as an Egyptian one. And that's what the word Hebrew is. That's the only time you see that word Hebrew used. Now, so there's three terms. Israelite. An Israelite is a term the Bible calls themselves, the Israelites, that the Israelites call themselves when they're talking to Israelites, and what they call themselves when they're talking to non-Israelites. Israelites is the official name of the people of Israel because God renamed Jacob Israel, which means God fights for you. You don't have to fight for yourself. He's your shield. He's your protector. He's your blesser. And so that's what they've been called. They're not officially, they're right now just the people of Israel. They're the people that came from the man called Israel. When they get to Mount Sinai, they're going to become the nation of Israel. Therefore, they're all throughout the First Testament, they're called the Israelites. When other people talk about them, they're either called the Israelites or the Hebrew people. When they're talking about themselves to other people, they're either the Hebrew people or the Israelites. They're never, ever, ever called the Jews. They're not called the Jews until when the Persians come along. And I think, forgive me, I think it's used maybe once in the book of Esther, and then you don't see it until the the Second Testament, the Gospels. And when they go into exile, so when in the 700s and the 500s, they go into exile because they weren't following God, and the Babylonians and Assyrians took them in captivity, that's when they begin to lose their national identity. Because now they're being scattered among other people. They're being... God has allowed this to happen because they have abandoned God. They have abandoned the Torah. They have abandoned the law. So in a desperate attempt to regain their national identity, they start latching themselves onto the Torah. And they start making the Torah everything, obedience. So important that it actually starts end up becoming a little bit more important than God, and that's the Pharisees that we see later. Now, you have to understand the Pharisees never, ever, ever, ever believed that the law saved them. They never believed that the law, that works in obedience to the law, saved them. Luther, Luther made that up. Luther was reading the Gospels, and he saw the Pharisees of the Catholic Church, and he saw him as Jesus, and so he said, well, if the Catholic Church is works-oriented, well, then the Pharisees must be too, and he made it all up. And, of course, he was so influential that they carried on. But nobody, nobody, the Pharisees knew they weren't perfect. Everybody knows that. You just turn on the news for five seconds, and you talk to your wife or your husband. You know you're not perfect, okay? So, or your kids. So they knew that. What they did was that they believed the fact that they were chosen by God and they had the law and nobody else did. That's what made them saved. They knew they couldn't obey the law and they kind of lost their relationship with God. 
So they made it their national identity. We're chosen and you're not. God gave us the law and spoke to us and he didn't speak to you. We're saved because of that. That's what Paul and Christ are combating is the idea that they're favored when they're not. And that's what they held on. So that's when the word Jew comes about because they start developing this overly developed nationalistic identity of their specialness. They take the be holy because I'm holy a little too concretely and a little too national, a little too ethnical and ethical, not ethical, but ethnicity. And they start making it about where something that you're not. They make the same mistake that the Egyptians are doing right here. Hebrew is how other people refer to them. Israelite is who they are in God's eyes and um, the Bible. And Jew is what they begin to call themselves when being a Jew is more important than anything else. And that's important because when the Bible uses the word Israelite all throughout the Bible, you have to remember they're using it to anybody who chose to join the Abrahamic covenant by faith regardless of ethnicity or nationality. But the reason we think that they were only Jewish people in Israel in the First Testament is because the Pharisees have convinced us that that's what it means to be an Israelite, those ethnic people. And the Jews today in Israel think Jewishness is those ethnic people. It was never ethnic in God's kingdom. That's what it later became. Does that kind of make sense? It's always been anybody from any ethnicity, any nation, who said, I want to have my faith in God, and I want to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant, and I want to receive these blessings, you automatically became an Israelite. So when the Israelites gave birth to an Israelite man by the name of Jesus, who became the king of the Israelites, and then you accepted that king as your sovereign king and God by faith, and he adopted you as your child, as his child, sorry, then you automatically became an Israelite. Because an Israelite is when you put your faith in the Israelite king and he adopts you into the Israelite faith. Okay? Because Israel, and that's what the prophets are talking about. The prophets always end with you Israelites in this place have failed. So God is taking you into exile, but when he brings you back, he's going to build a new kingdom of God and people, and as you come back from your exile, people from all nations and all languages are going to come back with you and they're all going to be part of this new city called Israel, Jerusalem. And what do you see in the book of Revelation? And I saw an uncountable number of people before the throne of God from every tribe, every language, and every nation. That was God's ideal all along. The Jews are the ones who made it ethnic after the exile. Okay, it's never been about ethnicity. It's always been about faith. It's always been about faith. And so they're going to eventually make the same mistake that Egypt is making as they look at them. So the word Hebrew may not mean necessarily that these midwives are descendants of Abraham. They could just be people that are not Egyptian who have been lumped in with the Israelites because they're not Egyptian. We're never told whether they're truly descendants of Abraham, and we're never really truly told whether they serve Yahweh or not, because we're told that they fear God. But fear God doesn't mean I actually worship Yahweh yet. Fear God in the Bible right now just means I'm honest, 
I'm a person of integrity and I'm willing to sacrifice my desires to help other people. Is that not what they do right here? In that sense, you fear God because if God is a man, a being of integrity who's honest and sacrificed for other people, and you reflect that character, then one can say that you fear God. Now, later when the prophets come in the time period of David and Proverbs is being written, Proverbs is going to push that fear of God deeper to, I actually worship Yahweh alone. Because the only way you really can truly be that kind of a character is if you worship the kind of God that is only that kind of a character. Right now, remember, Yahweh hasn't even appeared to them yet. They have no records yet. Right now, fear of God is, I'm just acting in a godly way because I'm more interested in helping people than myself. Later, when the prophets start developing theology, it becomes, well, fear of God really can only truly happen in its truest form if you're truly worshiping Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Does that make sense? So we don't really know. Which, if they're not truly descendants of Abraham, then it makes it even cooler that God is going to bless them. Which means blessing is not just for the descendants of Abraham. Blessings of God are for anybody who chooses to act in a godly way. God's blessings are more universal than just you have faith and that person doesn't. And I think we can see that. We look around the world and there's lots of people who are not Christians and yet God is blessing them because there's lots of people who are still doing the right thing at certain times. And so this is what he's trying to communicate here. 